0: Amen. Well, I'd ask you, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, the book of 1 Peter, first chapter, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 6 to 9, and I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read this passage together, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice. The salvation of your souls. It's God's word for us. Please be seated. Well, we've been looking at this book for a few weeks now, and we've already seen one of the major themes of this book is the theme of suffering. Peter is writing this letter to suffering believers who were beginning to be persecuted for following Jesus. And we know that suffering is a hard thing. And often it's just true that suffering can feel quite meaningless to us. We're not sure why. We're experiencing the pain that we are experiencing. Many of us have felt this. A few years ago, I remember hearing about a young family out of Bethlehem Baptist Church, a young family of five that was killed tragically on the interstate. When a semi-truck ran into their minivan, they were all killed instantly. And this family of five had been planning to go overseas to Japan to share the gospel with the lost, and it seemed so so. I don't know, mysterious, purposeless? Why would this family of five be taken at just that moment when they're just ready to go? Why would God do that? So did God have a plan, or was the suffering of the church at the loss of this family just meaningless? Was it purposeless? Two years ago, our church experienced kind of a similar tragedy in a way, though now we are just rejoicing in God's goodness. But one of our supported workers was diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer, And this was just after the family had arrived in the country where they were going to be serving God, and it seemed to make absolutely no sense. Why would he have cancer? Why would he be diagnosed with cancer right after arriving when they'd been planning to share the good news with the people of the country who needed to hear about Jesus? And again, did God have a plan, or or was this suffering brought into their lives? Was it meaningless? I think more generally of of Christians, uh, many of whom suffer with depression And that's a hard thing. It can be very, very difficult. And one of the most frustrating and difficult aspects of it is that often the person doesn't even know why he or she feels the way they do. What is this suffering? Why are they experiencing this mental suffering? It can often seem meaningless. And perhaps just this past week, suffering has entered into your life. You know, some new form of suffering that you hadn't experienced before. You weren't expecting it. And if you were honest this morning, you'd have to say that you don't understand why. Why it's here. You don't understand why God has called you to it. It kind of seems meaningless to you. It's easy for us to to feel that way. But as Christians, we know that even though we experience suffering in this life, our suffering is never meaningless. It's never purposeless. We know that God is good. We know that God is wise. We know that God is not capricious. He does not deal with us arbitrarily. He never permits his children to suffer needlessly, and that is very, very helpful. It means that when we experience suffering, we can trust him. We may not know why we're feeling what we're feeling, why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, but we do know our Father's heart, and we know that He is good, and we know that He has good purposes for the pain that He's permitting in our life. And that's really what we're going to be studying this morning as we look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. So we're continuing our study of this book. Last week, if you were with us, you know that we spent a lot of time working our way through verses 3 to 5 and thinking together about the living hope that we have as Christians. We saw that God the Father is the one who caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that living hope is really the eternal inheritance we have, Uh, the hope of life forever with God in Christ, the hope of seeing our Savior face to face, the hope of living in a perfect world, and all of that has been given to us through Christ. And we rejoice to think that God is both guarding the inheritance for us, and he's guarding us for the inheritance, and so we will not fail to arrive safely at our true home. Joyful, wonderful passage. Well, now in verse six to nine, Peter's beginning to kind of apply that truth to help us think about more the way that that reality should impact the way that we live, and particularly should impact the way we think about the suffering that enters our lives. And really, this is Peter kind of revealing his heart for this letter. You know, the letters in the New Testament, they were written on purpose. There was something going on in the life of these believers that caused these men of God to write the Word of God to them so that they would know how to think and how to live. And as we said, these believers were suffering persecution, and Peter loved them, and he cared for them, and he wanted them to think rightly about the suffering that they were facing so that they would not be hopeless and joyless, but so that they would be hopeful, so that they would be courageous, so that they would respond in a way that brings glory to God. And as we work our way through this passage this morning, we're going to see that Peter encourages them that God has good purposes. So God has good purposes for the suffering that he brings into our life. And we're going to see Jesus do, we're going to see Peter do this. He's going to point them to Jesus and remind them that Jesus is a present hope for his suffering people. Jesus is not far from us, but he's near to us, and he's near to us in our suffering as well. Those are going to be kind of the the two points for the sermon this morning, if you're taking notes. God, first point, God has good purposes for his people's suffering. We're going to see that as we look at verses 6 and 7. And then Jesus is a present good for his suffering people. And we're going to meditate on that as we look at verses 8 and 9 together this morning. Let's look at that first point. God has good purposes for His people's suffering. Take your copy of God's Word. Look at the first part then of verse 6. Look at what Peter says there. He speaks of the joy of these believers. He says, in this you rejoice. Now the word this there, it really refers back to all that we had talked about last week when we looked at verses 3 to 5. It's this living hope that they had received. It's this eternal inheritance that was before them. Peter knew that even though they were suffering for Christ's sake, they were rejoicing at the same time because they had this living hope, because they had the reality of their salvation before him. And the word rejoicing there, it's important to note, when he says, in this you rejoice, that word really doesn't speak of kind of like a small happiness, but this is a great rejoicing. This is a rejoicing of the soul. It's the word that Mary used in her Magnificat. When she said this, she said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why did she say that? Well, she was rejoicing greatly because she had been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, or the hope of Israel. They'd been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come, and she had been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. She's rejoicing greatly within. It's the word that's also used for the Philippian jailer when he rejoices along with his family, along with his household, that he had been saved, that he had believed in God. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. This word rejoice is an expressive word. It's a significant word. It's a deep word. It talks about a deep spiritual joy. It's a joy in God. It's a joy in the good things that God has done for us in Christ And so, no matter what these believers were facing, no matter what it was costing them to follow Jesus, Peter knew, he was confident that at the same time, they were rejoicing because they had a treasure, and that treasure could not be taken away from them. Now, we talked about this briefly last week, but one of the things that we see here is that Christians, they have a joy that is never dependent on their circumstances, completely independent of our circumstances in this life, and that's so different than the men and women of this world. So the men and women of this world who do not have Jesus, what do they have? All they have is this life. And so they spend their days, their hours, their weeks, their months, and what are they doing? They're doing exactly what we would be doing. They're pursuing happiness, as much happiness as they can find. And they pursue it in different ways. Some seek happiness in work success. Some seek happiness in money. Some seek happiness in relationships. It is Valentine's Day after all. And they're pursuing happiness in one form or another. And when things go well, how do they feel? Well, they feel great. It's wonderful. It's exciting. But what happens when they get fired? When they had just gotten that job that they'd been working hard for for so many years, and now they've been downsized. What happens when they go bankrupt? What happens when that relationship, that seemed to be the entire world to this person, what happens when that relationship breaks apart? Friends, it's not just sadness. Often all they're left with is just despair because the only, only thing they had that they were pursuing for happiness has now been taken away from them, and so they're left without any resource for happiness. But for believers, it's different. It should be different. We should think about it differently because we possess a resource that non-believers do not possess. We have this treasure, right? Peter, Peter's talking to these believers, and he's he's kind of focusing their eyes on the treasure that they possess. He says, this is true of you. You have Christ. You have a living hope. You have an eternal inheritance ahead of you. So I know you're rejoicing, right? I'm rejoicing at all times because they could never, ever lose the treasure that they had in Christ. It's very significant. It's very significant, that believers can always rejoice, right? It's to no purpose, it's like not for no reason that the Bible over and over and over tells us to do what? Rejoice always, and again, I'll say rejoice, and we can do that because we always have Jesus. So here's my question. How was your joy this past week? Were you rejoicing this past week? Uh, If you're like me, you'll find it to be very easy to kind of get sucked back into that old way of living where you're looking for some thing that's making you happy. Maybe it's some success. Maybe it's some possession. Maybe it's some relationship. There's something you're looking for. And when things are going well, you find it easy to be happy. And then when that thing is taken away, you find yourself crushed. Perhaps you've experienced some of that this week. Well, this is a reminder, this passage is a reminder to us that we do not have to be controlled by our circumstances because we have a joy, we have a treasure that can't be taken from us, and that is Jesus. So if we will do this, if we will focus on our treasure, if we'll keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we'll always have a reason to rejoice no matter what we're facing. It's good news. Now, at the same time, we need to keep in mind Peter's doing here. He's, he's, he's showing us the joy, but he's also showing us the sorrow. He's letting us know that we live in a fallen world. We ourselves are fallen, and we do suffer, right? So the fact that we can rejoice always doesn't mean that we will not at the same time also experience grief. And that's what Peter goes on to say there in verses six, or excuse me, verses, yeah, verses six and seven, the second part of verse six and into seven. For the Christian, joy and grief often go together. So, look at that. Look at the second part of verse 6. He says, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, what's Peter doing here? He's talking about the present pain that these believers were experiencing, he's acknowledging their pain. But think about the way that he talks about it. It's really remarkable because he doesn't focus on the pain. He acknowledges the reality of the pain. But do you notice that he kind of points them past their pain to the fact that God has good purposes for their suffering? So I want us to look at these verses a little more closely. And I want us to learn four truths that they teach us about the relationship between the Christian and his or her suffering. I think this is very practical. I hope you'll find it to be very helpful For the Christian, suffering is only for this present life. That's the first thing that you see here. That's what Peter means when he says, though now, right now, talking about this life. So Christianity is not like Buddhism. Buddhism teaches us that we're supposed to ignore pain. We're actually supposed to not believe in pain, to think that it's not real after all, that suffering is not real, but Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity rightly acknowledges the fact that we really do hurt. And sometimes we really do hurt quite deeply. But Christianity also does this. It helps us to think rightly about our pain. And part of thinking rightly about our pain is this is realizing that for the believer, pain is only for this life. that the day is coming when we will no longer suffer any pain, any sorrow, any weeping, any mourning, any tears. We point to this passage a lot at Christ Fellowship. I think it's a good thing. Revelation chapter 21, here's this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Here's this hope that we have ahead of us. Here's what John says there. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And what will it be like? Listen to verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. A tremendous hope. But what about right now? So think about your own life this morning. Where are you hurting? you have to know on Sunday morning we all gather together you know we look as good as we can y'all look great this morning and yet this is a room that's filled with pain it really is and as we get to know each other more and more deeply we'll know where that is so we can minister to one another better and that's such a good thing but some of us are struggling with intense depression for some of us it's just very very difficult to get here on a Sunday morning for some of us our marriages are are really hurting right we look great on Sunday morning, but we're really struggling the rest of the time. Our marriages are falling apart. What about your boss, right? You're at work, you're working hard, you're trying to do your best. Does your boss belittle you? Does your boss make you feel worthless, like your job isn't significant, like you're not significant, like you can never do enough to please him or her? Are you troubled by some particular sin right now, some sin, that one sin, you just, you hate it, but for whatever reason you can't You can't defeat it, and it's such a source of sorrow for you this morning. Some of us are there. Have your children turned their backs on God? right? So you have poured into them, right? You've poured into them. You've pointed them towards Jesus. But despite that, they have turned their back on God. They're not interested in living for him. All of these are forms of suffering that believers face in this world. All of these are forms of suffering, brothers and sisters, listen, that we face in this church. Right? These are ways that we hurt in this church. But praise God, listen, a better world is coming. That's what Revelation 21 teaches us. That's what Peter is talking about. A better world is coming, a world without tears, without mourning, without crying, without pain. And that leads us to a second truth that you see here in verse 6. For the Christian, secondly, suffering is brief. That's what he says. Peter says, though now for a little while. for a little while. Now, our suffering doesn't always feel like it's brief, does it? Personally, I've had uh, chronic back pain for 13 years, and sometimes that has been quite intense, and some of you have been suffering in one way or another for decades, just kind of ongoing, intense suffering, and it feels like a long time, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like it's just for a little while, but that's the point. That's what we need to keep in mind is that even if we suffer our entire lives, our lives just it's just a blink of the eye in light of eternity. You know, the Bible teaches us that this life is short. The Bible teaches us that eternity is long. So think about it. Think about it. The suffering that you're feeling this morning, even though it hurts intensely, we need to acknowledge that. It hurts intensely. Even though it may feel like it's never going to end, the Bible teaches that that suffering, the suffering you're feeling right now, It's momentary. And 20,000 years from now, if you remember that suffering at all, it will only be so that you can praise God for the greatness of His salvation because He's used that suffering to make heaven more weighty, more significant, more glorious for you. That's a good thing. So, brothers and sisters, listen we must be patient as we face suffering in this life. We must be patient because it will not last long. One day we'll see that more fully. The third truth for for the Christian, suffering is necessary. Look at what Peter says there again in verse 6. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Christians face various trials. We've listed some of those trials this morning, uh, but we mentioned at the introduction of this sermon that, that, you know what, all of these trials that we experience, none of them are purposeless. None of them are meaningless. If there's pain in your life right now, it's because God, who is both wise and good, he's brought it into your life. He has a purpose for it, right? It is necessary. And if God sees that it's necessary, well, that should be good enough for us. In many ways, we're like Joseph in our pain, right? He's sitting in prison in Egypt. It seems completely unnecessary for him to be in prison. Why does he have to be in prison, but God saw that it was necessary for him to be there. And it's very much like that for us. And that really leads us into kind of the the fourth truth, and that's for the Christian, suffering is is purposeful. Again, one of the great difficulties we experience within, kind of one of the, the mental anguish aspect of the suffering, is that we want to say, why, over and over. Why? Why am I feeling this? Why have you permitted this? Why is the timing now? Why isn't my life different than I expected that it would be. We want to ask this question, why? We don't always get the answer, but we can know that God has a purpose. Again, that suffering is not meaningless. Look at verse seven. Peter goes on to say that. He says, so that. So as you're studying the Bible on your own, whenever you see so that, there's important words, they're telling us the purpose of what's to come. They're telling us why they're saying what they're saying. Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter's using an illustration here to help us understand God's purpose in our suffering. So a person who purifies gold, what do they do? Well, they have to, uh, they have to heat that gold up to an incredible amount. Uh, gold does not heat at a low temperature, and it's only by being heated up with fire that the impurities in the gold are kind of burned away, and the gold itself is purified. It's a difficult process. Well, in the same way, God, because he values our faith, he brings suffering into our lives, and he intends to use that suffering to purify us, right? To, to kind of wean us from sin, to help us become more like Jesus. And it's, it's difficult, but it's an important thing He purifies us, and in doing that, he also, Peter says, tests the genuineness of our faith, demonstrating that our faith in Jesus is the real thing, that it endures, that it doesn't quit, that it doesn't turn back, but that we persevere in believing. God's purpose in testing our faith is a good one. The process is hard right? The fire that heats up the gold is hot. Our sufferings, I think it's such an an appropriate illustration that Peter uses, because the suffering that he brings into our lives sometimes is so incredibly intense, right? But again, God is good, and he's wise, and he knows what he is doing. And here Peter says, when God is done testing our faith in this life, here's the, the good news. He is going to cause us to stand before him at the revelation of Jesus Christ, It's an amazing thing to think when Jesus is shown to be who he truly is, we will stand before him, and God says on that day, our faith will be shown to be genuine, right? More precious than gold that perishes. So gold in this life, it's precious, but it perishes, it passes away, but our faith will endure. It will be shown to be the real thing, and the most amazing aspect of this passage to me is that God himself will reward us. It says that we'll know praise and glory and honor for the way that we endured suffering in this life, to think that God would honor us for the grace that he produced in us so that we would endure and not give up. For the Christian suffering is far from meaningless. What does suffering do? So many things. It reminds us of the wretched effects of sin and the curse that has fallen upon this world, including our bodies. And we know that more the older we get, so that we hate sin more. And it's good and right for us to hate sin. It's good and right for us to hate death. It's good and right for us to be able to say, this world is not as it should be. And praise God that one day he's going to make all things new. Our suffering keeps us from loving the things of this world too much. It loosens our grip on the world, so to speak, so that we don't cling to what we can't keep. I remember talking with my grandmother when she was close to death and she was having what she would call a bad day. She was just in a lot of pain, and I talked with her about how she was doing. She lived with us at the time, and she just said, you know, Peter, God, he just uses the pain to make me more ready for heaven. That was how she was thinking about it, and I think it's true because, friend, you have to understand you can't keep this world. We're just the next generation of who knows how many generations, and they've all come and gone, and we're also come, now we're going to go as well. We can't stay here. God uses suffering to kind of wean us from this world so that we're prepared for heaven. Our suffering helps us to see our own sinfulness and the ugliness of our hearts, and that's hard, but it's necessary. So right, when the suffering comes, when the fire comes, well, what comes out of us? right? The suffering doesn't put anything into us. It doesn't make us sinful. No, all the suffering does is it kind of heats us up, and it reveals what's in our heart, right? It kind of squeezes us, and then what's on the inside? Well, that's what comes out, and suffering does that. It shows us areas of our lives where we need to turn away from sin, turn away from pride, turn away from anger, turn away from discontent, and instead repent of that and put our trust in Jesus again in a fresh way. God uses suffering in our lives to do that. I love what J.C. Ryle had to say about her sufferings. He said, affliction and sufferings are not real evils. They're the school of God in which he trains the children of grace for glory, the medicines which are needful to purify our corrupt wills, the furnace which must burn away our dross, the knife which must cut the ties that bind us to this world. So church, Christ Fellowship, if we can grasp that God has good purposes for our sufferings. It will go a long way in helping us to be the the joyful, uh, faith-filled, hope-filled church that we should be, and I would say by God's grace that we are, and that we want to be more and more and more. So I just want to encourage you this morning just to kind of point out one one evidence of God's grace in your life. Uh, Again, COVID's been difficult, hasn't it? there's been all kinds of odd, weird things that we've never experienced. We've had to do all kinds of odd, weird things as a church, and the elders have had to make all kinds of decisions. And I heard one brother pastor talking about, like, decision weariness, decision fatigue. You know, what do you do next? What do you do next? What do you do next? Well, you've all been doing that as well. And yet, by God's grace, the elders can just say that we can thank God for you, Because even though we're coming from different, you know, places, looking at what we're experiencing, even though there's the stress of all of this, God has helped you to love each other well. God has helped you to endure this well. God has helped you to serve one another well in the midst of it. And we just want to say one thank you, and we want to encourage you to press on, right? Press on. This suffering also is momentary, and God will bring us through it, and God will use it in our lives. So let's keep pressing on, being joyful, hopeful, loving, and God can do that good work in us. So verse 6 and 7, we see that God has good purposes for the suffering that he brings to our lives. But do you notice that Peter doesn't stop there? I love what he does in verse 8 and 9 because, you know, Peter loves Jesus. He's learned to love Jesus. And he, he's talking at the end of verse 7 about the fact that Jesus is going to be revealed. is This future glory that we're going to see Christ as he is. But it's like he can't, you know, he can't leave Jesus there in the future. He wants to remind these believers that Jesus is a present good. He's a present good to them in the midst of their suffering. So he really just meditates on the relationship between these believers and their Savior there. In verse 8 and 9, he points these suffering believers to Jesus. And our second point is that Jesus is a present good for his suffering people. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So here, the end of verse 7, Peter's reminding them of the reward that's coming, the fact that they're going to see Christ glorified on the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to be a glorious day. Jesus will come, friends. He will establish his kingdom. He will be shown to be who he is And on that day, we will experience the fullness of the blessing of belonging to him. What a glorious hope we have for the future. But verses 8 and 9 show us that the blessings we have as those who follow Jesus, it's not only for the future, it's for now as well. Jesus, again, is a present good. Even though these believers were suffering, their relationship with Jesus was sweet. It was good. They loved him. They had a real relationship with him, and that relationship was a source of great joy. Look at how Peter does this. The first part of verse 8, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, who was Peter? Well, he was one of the disciples. So he walked with Jesus, and he talked with Jesus. He spent time with him. They went around Israel together performing ministry, Jesus doing his miracles, and Jesus took Peter aside, along with James and John at times and the other disciples, and he's pouring into them. So Peter had seen Jesus, and, and Peter loved Jesus. He truly loved Jesus. I wonder, I wonder, as Peter thought about these believers, many of whom were Gentiles, if it was, if it was um, kind of amazing to him to think that these ones who had never seen Jesus truly loved Jesus just the way that he had The word for love there, it's the familiar word agape. It's the word that's used for God's love. It's the the strongest possible form of love in this world. And it shows that these believers had a real relationship with Jesus, even though they hadn't seen him physically. They truly loved him. They had a real relationship with him. And it wasn't only love, was it? Look, he goes on to say that they were also trusting Jesus. Peter says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. That word "believe" there it refers really to kind of a trusting in, a depending on, in the way that you would trust in and depend on a friend. You see, it's the language of relationship again. And it wasn't only love and trust; it was more than that. Peter says, "And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." So, because of their relationship with Jesus, these these people had a, a real relationship, and that relationship gave them a deep and substantial joy. The kind of joy that they couldn't really even describe with words. It's this reality that they had received in their relationship with Jesus. So they're suffering, but they had a real relationship with Jesus. And it was a relationship that was marked by love and trust and joy. And every good relationship is marked by those things, right? It's marked by that. In a real sense, they were obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. The word obtaining there is in the present tense in the original language. And the idea is this. It speaks of continually obtaining, of receiving more and more, of obtaining more and more, of getting more and more. In other words, as these Christians continued in their relationship with Jesus, they experienced more and more the love and trust and joy of that relationship, they were experiencing more and more of their salvation. And they would continue to do that until they saw Jesus face to face. And then they would know the fullness of the salvation that they'd received in Christ. It's beautiful. Jesus was a, pres- he was a present good to these believers. And brothers and sisters in Christ's fellowship, he's a present good to us as well there's a lot we could say about this passage. I want to make just kind of two observations. First, it teaches us a lot about what a Christian is, right? right. This passage teaches us a lot about what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has an actual relationship with Jesus. That may seem silly for us to say, but most of the people, most of the people in the world do not understand this. They do not know what a Christian is. They think of a Christian, they think of kind of a religious person. It's a person that chooses to go to a church. It's a person that reads his or her Bible. It's a person who prays. Yeah, it's someone who believes that Jesus is God. But they completely miss what's at the heart of being a Christian. And what's at the heart of being a Christian is a real relationship with Jesus. It's not just some theological abstraction. Christianity is not just some like, you do this and you don't do this, and you go here and you don't go there. It's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a relationship. Christianity is not performing a series of Christian ceremonies. It's not simply going to church. It's not simply believing that Jesus is God. It is knowing Christ personally, it's having a relationship with Him that's real. So we have never seen Jesus physically, but for all that, we know Him. We have a real relationship with Him, He's our Savior. We're part of his body, his spirit, the very spirit of Christ lives within us, and our relationship with him is marked by love, and it's marked by trust, and it's marked by joy. So Christians, listen, this is so important. If you're a, if you're a young person growing up in the church, you have to understand this. Being a Christian is not just going to church. It's not just believing propositions about God and Jesus, it's having a relationship with Jesus. What is that like? Well, Christians love Jesus. Why do we love Jesus? Well, we love him because he came down from the glory of heaven and he lived among us, among broken sinners like us. And then he laid down his life on the cross so that we might be saved. We love him because he loved us in that way. We love Jesus because even though we're not lovely, he has set his love on us. That's an amazing thing to think that Jesus Himself loves us. We love Jesus because even though we fail Him daily, and we do, He never despises us. We can always go to Him. We can confess our sins. We can pray for fresh grace, and we get fresh grace. He never despises us. He never spurns us. He always welcomes us. He always cleanses us. He always forgives us. Why? So that we do not give up. He's a sympathetic Savior. And Christians trust in Jesus. We depend on him. We rely on him. Why? Well, we, we depend on Jesus. We trust in Jesus because his word is faithful and true. We've seen it over and over in our, in our lives. We trust in Jesus because he was victorious over death, right? He's a strong savior. He's someone that's worthy of our trust because he's demonstrated that he's able to save us by overcoming our greatest enemy, sin and death. And hell, we trust Jesus because he has demonstrated his willingness to save us by dying for us on the cross. You do understand, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the only thing that's keeping you from that is your unwillingness to repent and follow him. It's not Christ, it's you. It's not that Jesus is unwilling to save you, it's that you're unwilling to be saved. And we would urge you, go to Christ today because he's good. And he will welcome you. He will welcome you to salvation today. And Christians rejoice in Jesus. We rejoice in Jesus because his work on the cross was fully sufficient to pay for all of our sins. So there is no burden on me now to be good enough for God because Jesus has fully paid for all of my sins. And beyond that, he has clothed me with his righteousness so that when God sees me, he doesn't see all of my weakness and failure. He sees Christ his glory, his perfection. And in that way, we are made acceptable to God. We rejoice in Jesus because even now, he is interceding for us before the Father. So men and I have been reading a book that just kind of points us to the heart of Christ. And recently, we studied a chapter just talking about the fact that Jesus' ministry did not end at the cross and the resurrection, but even now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father doing what? Interceding for us. Why? So that we would have fresh grace given day after day after day, so that the enemy who accuses us day after day will not be able to say anything against us because Christ continues to say, my work is perfect in his place. My work is perfect in her place. You're accepted, brother or sister, because of the perfect work of Christ, and it is an ongoing work of intercession for you, even right now. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in Jesus because he's coming soon to make all things new, what a good word. These are just a few reasons why Christians love and trust and rejoice in Jesus. So my question, friend, to you is, do you love Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you rejoice in Jesus? Again, I have a burden for young people who grow up in church because they're very christian but they often lack this relationship that is utterly necessary. If you're going to be saved, it's utterly necessary that you have a real relationship with Jesus. And you need that. And we pray that you will know that. Friend, it's not enough to say you're a Christian. The question is we started out the service by reading Psalm 34. The question is have you tasted and seen that Jesus is good? Have you experienced the reality of that in your life? You must. Here's the wonderful news. Even if you don't know Jesus now, you can. Because the amazing thing about this Savior is that he loves you. Friend, he loves you. He desires to have a relationship with you. He's the creator. He's the Savior. Uh, you were made for him. Right? God created you to have a relationship with with him. That's why you exist. You do not exist to fulfill as many of your desires as possible before you die. That's not why you exist. You exist for God, to have a relationship with him, and friend, that's where you will know real blessing. That's where you'll know real joy, because why? That's what you were made for, But you're just like me. You're just like everyone else in this room. We were created for God, and yet we were born sinful and separated from him, and so instead of living for him, we we felt, you know, like what I wanted to do was live for me, So my first words were me, mine, and give me. I was more than willing to hit my brothers, you know, whenever they got in my way in order to get what I wanted. And as I grew up, not a lot changed. Why? Because that's what sin does. Sin turns us in on ourselves. We shrink down the glory of God and the universe he's created into the size of my little desires. It's treason against God. It's not a little thing, it's a significant thing. The amazing thing is this. There's no way for us to be good enough for God. There's no way for us to earn his salvation. He's holy. We're not holy. There's no way for me to make up for the things that I've done wrong. Left to myself, friend, left to yourself, you would perish under the wrath of God because of your sins. The good news is that God is a mighty and glorious Savior. God the Father sent his Son to the world. The eternal Son of God became a man. Jesus, this precious one that we've been talking about this morning, he came to live a perfect life of love and faith and obedience because you and I can't do that. He lived exactly the way we should have lived, but we've all failed to live, and then he did that not not for himself, as if he needed righteousness, but he did that for us because we needed righteousness. And when the time was right, he laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead, and so you have a very substantial reason to believe in Jesus because he is the risen Savior. And friend, if you will turn from your sin and put your trust in him this morning, you will have him as your Savior. All your sins will be forgiven. They'll be washed away. You'll be white as snow. You'll be made new. And you'll be brought into a relationship with Jesus where he will be your Savior, your advocate, your elder brother, your intercessor. Friend, he'll be your all. And that's a good thing. And so we invite you to put your trust in Christ this morning. We invite you, if you're a religious person, to turn away from religion and to put your trust in Christ, to hope in him and in him alone. And he will save you. He will save you this morning. What's a Christian? A Christian is someone who has a real relationship with Jesus. There's, there's one more thing I want us to see from this passage this morning. Having a relationship with Jesus enables believers to endure the sufferings of this life. This is really, I think, Peter's main point. In verses 8 and 9, this is what he's doing. He knows he's writing to suffering Christians. He wants to encourage them, and the way he encourages them is by reminding them of their relationship with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is not far from us in our suffering. Jesus is not unconcerned about our pain. He's a brother born for adversity. Again, he's a present good for a suffering people. If we had time, we could go around the room this morning, and we could give testimony to that, to ways that Jesus has ministered to us in seasons of suffering, carrying us through. We know that he's prayed for us so that our faith would not fail. We know that he's given us strength when we were weary. We know that he has given us peace when there was no earthly reason for us to have peace. We know what it's like to feel like we're losing absolutely everything. And then to be reminded that if we have Jesus, then that we have all that we will ever need. He's ministered to us in all of those ways, and he's ministered to us in countless other ways. In our suffering, it's been our relationship with Jesus that has made hard things easy and bitter things sweet. And this becomes so practical in our suffering. Because here we have have a Savior that is a present help in the midst of suffering, And that helps us because one of Satan's weapons, one of Satan's weapons, he's so good at it, is to fix our eyes on our pain. Whether the pain is mental or physical or relational, he is so good at getting us just to kind of focus on the pain and the suffering. He surrounds us, as it were, with our problems and our difficulties. So instead of Looking up instead of looking to the Savior, we're just focused on our suffering. And because we're weak, and this is what we have to understand, because we're weak, we feel absolutely hopeless. Right? We realize that we're not big enough to deal with our problems. And if all we can see is our problems, that's a problem. Do you understand? And that's what Satan does. He fixes our eyes on our problems over and over. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled. And they can just talk to me over and over about the issue, the problem, the issue, the problem. And minutes will go by, and hours will go by, and I don't hear Jesus. I hear the problem. And what we're saying is that we have a solution in our suffering, and the solution is Jesus. And he's a present help. He's a real Savior. So how do we fight back? By faith we learn to take our eyes off of our suffering. We don't deny the reality of our suffering. We don't deny the reality of our pain. But by faith, we learn to take our eyes off of our suffering, and instead, we place our eyes on the Savior. And we meditate on His goodness. And we meditate on His faithfulness. And we think about the ways that He's blessed us. And we think about the salvation that He's given to us. And we fix our eyes on Jesus, not on our problems. And what happens? All of a sudden, Jesus becomes, for us, a refuge, a strong tower, which is who he is. We must, by God's grace, learn to take ourselves in hand and say, it feels like Jesus is far from me, but he's not. He's a present help to his suffering people. We have to learn to preach to ourselves. We must learn to fix our eyes on Jesus. We must fix our eyes on his power. You have to understand, he can take your problem away in a second. And as soon as he sees that it's good for you to do that, he will take your problem away. So you can trust his timing. You can, trust that you can trust his ability, and you can meditate on that. You can meditate on the fact that Jesus suffers with us in our pain. Again, this is one of the things that we're learning together as a group of men, just thinking about the fact that we're part of the body of Christ. And when part of my body is suffering, I'm suffering. I'm impacted by that. And it's comforting to know that in my pain, Jesus is impacted by that. He cares. He cares. So I'm not alone. So when Satan tells me I'm the only one, I'm all alone it's a lie. It's not true. We need to focus on his perfect intercession as our high priest. We already talked about that, but the fact that Jesus intercedes for us moment by moment means that we receive fresh grace, ever fresh grace to continue to press on, to continue to take the next step towards heaven so that we don't give up. And we must learn, we must learn to meditate on the mighty Spirit of God who's been given to us. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ who lives within us. And so we lack nothing that we need to live for God. Friend, you all, listen. if you're in Christ, you always have precisely what you need to live for God. Because the very Spirit of God lives within you. What an amazing thing to think that God would take up residence in our lives in our suffering, we must learn to look to Jesus because Jesus is a present good. And in that way, we will not be overwhelmed by our sorrows, but instead will be encouraged to press on. It's so incredibly practical. And it is a good that is accessed in one way. It's accessed by faith. By believing that the things we just meditated on are true, and by faith, we receive the goodness of those things into our lives now. And what good news? What good news? Christ's Fellowship, as we go through life, our suffering will often feel meaningless, but we've seen that it's not. It's not meaningless that God has good purposes for our suffering and that God himself is with us. Jesus is with us in our suffering. He's a present good for us. So as we suffer, and we will, may we learn to trust God more. And may we learn by God's grace to press ever more deeply into a relationship with Jesus. Because he is all we need. And let's pray.